As we begin moving into the T books, the five books, Thessalonians, Timothy, and Titus, we are forced to look at the issue of the end times. So our two sessions tonight, the first one will be, in a simple sense, a very simple overview of the end times. Then we'll take our break. And then we'll return back and go through the entire book of First Thessalonians, all five chapters. <clears throat> so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Now, obviously, if you've come to any conclusions on end times, the fancy word for that is eschatology. If you come to any fancy, if you come to any conclusions on it, you will, from that point on, teach from that bend. So I'm going to try my best to be as objective as possible, but let me just say right off the bat. Obviously, I'm going to have a bend to it, but let me make clear, I didn't come to the conclusions I did because I was part of Calvary. I came to my conclusions on the end times before I became part of any denomination, or non-denomination, if you will, because and it was just the one that in, that in essence embodied exactly what I believed. And, and one of the things that are dangerous is there are certain areas in our own walks with the Lord, if we're going to be honest. There's certain areas with our walks with the Lord that we just read and we kind of go, okay, that's just simple. But majority of the doctrine we hold on to, chances are, has been bequeathed to us by whatever environment we're in. If we're going to be honest, areas like the Holy Spirit, spiritual warfare, where God is in stuff like the Trinity, in regards to the work of Jesus, the continuing work of Jesus in our lives, what the purpose of the church is, the purpose of us as Christians, where we stand on the, uh, the peace about it or the security of our salvation. Those are, for the most part, issues, chances are, that you've adopted from things that have been handed to you. And it's really, and I think there are certain areas, but none of the areas always seem to be the most, uh, seem to be the most confusing, I guess, than this area. And it seems to me that the harder that an area of doctrine is, the more quick we are to sort of throw the towel in and just say, just tell me what we believe, and then tell me what verses I need to back that up. And that can be really dangerous for any of us, because sooner or later, whatever you believe is going to be challenged. And that will. And the fun part about that is, is if at least you know where you stand, if you know what the facts are, then at least you can go from those facts. Now, let me just say the one thing that you should always expect from me is I'm a literalist. I believe if God wrote it, he literally meant what he literally said, and it's literally that way unless God told me otherwise. He knows how to communicate. I know how to study poetry and, and things that are like obviously more metaphorical. And I know when a person is trying to paint a picture of something that's not literal. For instance, when he says the kingdom of heaven is like something. Well, that's a simile. Something is clearly like another thing. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is this thing. Now, in other words, God knows when he's speaking metaphorically. He knows how to do that. But he also knows how to say something and make it literal. Now, the reason I say that is, is that unless God tells me otherwise, I have a tendency to take things literally. I have never had to change my position on anything as a result of that. Now, that doesn't make me better than anyone else, but at least I want to make sure that you know that I'm coming at it from a literal perspective. Now, I always find the moment you take something God lo that looks simple and literal, and then you sort of go, well, but it could mean this and this and this and this, it seems to me that the simple becomes so confusing. And that becomes a problem. So what if, what, what, what if, we just actually read the Bible and believed it? 
We didn't have anyone else teaching us. We didn't have any tape series or any MP3 series or anything like that. And you just said, I believe that whatever God wrote, that just is what it is. Let me ask you, without anyone else's additions or anyone else's quote-unquote expert opinions on it, would you believe in evolution? If you just read the first two chapters of Scripture, or the first chapter of Scripture, would you actually go, and would you, could you come to the conclusion without anyone aiding you that there was evolution? And I'm not trying to go for the throat of that. The whole point is, it says there was a morning, there was a night, it was done. Then he did this, and then there was a morning, there was a night, it was done. I mean, it's almost as if God couldn't have said it any other way, more than he already has, without sounding redundant. And we go, well, I think that it could mean a thousand or a million or a billion years. Well, it could mean anything once you start doing that. But the reason I say that is, is that we, the moment you start doing that, I understand why every person then looks and goes, well, the Bible's so hard to understand. Actually, the Bible's so easy to understand, it just gets hard when somebody else tells you that one doesn't necessarily equal one. So just and again, the only reason I say that is, is when we approach the area of end times, I'm just going to kind of go at it, and I just want us to kind of at least see what Scripture says. Now, I understand there are brilliant and godly men who stand on different positions about certain aspects of this that doesn't make them any less godly or doesn't make them any less brilliant or anything like that. But I'm just kind of a simple guy, and I just kind of believe if God says one, then I believe he means one. That's kind of the idea. So, let's pray. <clears throat> I'm going to just point out some basic points. And the reason I want to do this is, is if we're going to approach the Thessalonians, understand the first letter of the Thessalonians, they are freaking out because they actually believe Jesus has already raptured people. Now, you don't have to believe me. We'll see that when we get to the book. Every chapter in First Thessalonians ends with the Lord's return. That tells me it's a key note on this. So, <clears throat> go to the Lord with me, please, in prayer. Lord, I pray for the divine driving out of the plague of flies that are entering into our house because it's so hot out and we're opening up doors and windows. I pray that we would not be distracted, Lord, by anything. <coughs> I know that this particular information can seem confusing if we kind of go, what about if we bend this or turn this? But if we look at simple things, I pray that this will become more clear and simple and real than it has ever been to every one of us. That we can leave here, even tonight, with just this information and go, I feel like I have so much of a better understanding of what it is that you want to do. So, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Overcome me. Immerse me in your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, use me as your mouthpiece to teach us in a way that we get, that we understand, that we really just get. That we're more than just captivated, though we would be. That we have more than just fun, though we would have that. But, Lord, that we would tonight, that the light bulbs would go on and the clarity would be so simple and real. So, Lord, keep me clear and concise. But, Lord, let it be that we get it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you would expect me to say tonight as I would any. Please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. How much more when we're talking about a subject like this? So, here we go. Uh, if you have this in, uh, I give you as a handout where it says a little bit about the end of the world. And, again... The word that's used by those that are sort of dropping three penny words is eschatology. Simple points. First of all, there is a time of the church being used as a witness to the world. That's the current time. There was a time when God had ordained Israel to be the witness to the world. We see that clearly in the book of Isaiah. And once God had, in Acts chapter 2, raised up the church, 
It is clearly a time for the church to be the witness to bring the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Let's face it, nobody else is going to do it but the church. Now, Romans 11 tells us that, and Revelation 1-3 through focuses on that church's mission, and, by the way, the shortcomings of it. Second, Jesus is coming for his people. Now, the reason I believe that is because he told me so. Not just on my bed in the middle of the night after a pizza. He told me that in John chapter 14 when he says, I go prepare a place for you, and when I'm done, I will receive you. I will go and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He clearly wants to pick me up somewhere in all of this and take me back to where he is. Now, since we know that he's in heaven, according to Scripture, sitting at the right hand of the Father, but, but he's in heaven, then I know where he's at, what he's doing, is he's building, and I know that he's going to come and get me, and he wants to bring me back there. Okay, I'm good with that. <clears throat> Third thing, and it's important to note, according to Matthew 24, 36, nobody knows when. <clears throat> that is fundamental. Now, in other words, the moment somebody comes out with a publication... Hint, nudge, wink, that tells you you should, I don't know, not be sleeping, but rather awake, or you should be up in a tower watching, or whatever, and telling you that this is the day the Lord's coming back? Well, I would kind of go and say, well, then it clearly can't be that day, because then somebody would know the day or the hour. And there have been groups that have tried on more than one occasion. So, when it does come, and we'll see that, by the way, in the Thessalonian letters, it will be a time that I can't even get the idea the church is going to be surprised. But nobody knows. Jesus actually says, believe it or not, he says, I don't even know. He says, that's reserved for the Father. No. I kind of get the idea that would be a temptation, maybe real rough for Jesus, if he actually knew, but he, did, he couldn't tell his disciples. You know. Anyways. There is a time of tribulation. God had promised the time of Jacob's trouble. A time where the world is going to fall apart. That is key. Now, We'll talk about the timing on that in a bit. There was also a millennial reign of Jesus. Now, millennial means a thousand years. How long do I believe a millennial reign is going to be for Jesus? A thousand years. I, you know, again, call me dumb. But I believe that Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years because it says he reigns for a thousand years in Revelation 20. I think that's kind of simple. Now, some will say, but wait a minute, isn't like a thousand years like a day? Now, interesting, because it, when we talk about like the day of the Lord, we don't think of that as a thousand years of the Lord. I just kind of find it interesting how that, well, anyways, people normally use that in two places. They use it there, and they use it somehow in regards to evolution. Because isn't a day like a thousand years? Well, it doesn't say a day is like 300 million years. Anyways. <clears throat> there is a last great battle to follow. We know that is the battle on a at a specific place. We, of course, notice uh, the, t the term people even use, even unbelievers will use the term Armageddon. Do you even know what the term means? Har means hill. So when you go hardy, har, har, you're saying hilly, hill, hill. Uh, Megiddo, Megiddon is from the term Megiddo, like the place. There is a great valley in Jezreel that is, in essence, northwest of Jerusalem, southwest of Galilee, if you are, I should say, of the Sea of Galilee. And in that valley, 
There is a place there where on the western side of it is a hill called of an area called Megiddo. It was an area, by the way, where Solomon had his horses. So Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon is actually, in essence, the Battle of the Hill of Megiddo. Well, it's really the valley, because that's really where it's going to take place. Anyways, and ultimately, Jesus obliterates the, in battle. In other words, he just whips. And then we win, spend eternity with him, and we live happily forever <laughs> after. That's the end of the book. Now, <clears throat> for what it's worth, there are a couple other things to consider in distinctions. One is that there is a catching up. A catching up, we're going to see in 1 Thessalonians 4, is the term harpazo. Harpazo, when translated into Latin, is the term rapturas. It is from that word that we get the term rapture. So when people say the term rapture isn't in scripture, I would say, well, if you're reading Latin it is, but you're not going to find it if you're reading Greek because it's a Latin word. The term, in essence, means to be, to be snatched away. It would be the idea of Daniel just about to fall into the river off a bridge, but, you know, Suti, in his amazing ninja skill he doesn't tell anyone about, shows up out of nowhere, grabs him, and almost violently pulls him out from his own peril and pulls him to safety. That would be a violent, not a necessarily violent like to hurt Daniel, but a violent pulling him away. In other words, it was a pretty radical pulling away. And that's the term for harpazo, the same term, again, as rapturas, which we see, and the term is used in First Thessalonians 4. However, and by the way, he tells us that that day should encourage us. We should be really encouraged about the day that the Lord does that. We'll see that in First Thessalonians 4. However, there is also a day called the Day of the Lord. Joel 2 tells us about that. And that day actually doesn't sound as joyful. It's a day that the sky turns black, the moon turns blood red. It's a day of destruction and pain. Now, it's hard to recognize those two days as the same thing. Might I suggest to you they could be different, but they're clearly distinctively said things. A couple of points of <clears throat> distinction. I would like you to consider the reason that the Jewish Orthodox refuse to believe in Jesus is that they refuse to believe that Jesus could or the Messiah could come more than once. That was their whole thing. They, they know that there are scriptures about the Messiah coming, getting vengeance, that day of the Lord from Joel 2. He, they know that when he's going to come, all of the enemies of Israel will be vanquished. And they're like, so are all the enemies of Israel vanquished? I don't think so. Well, the problem is they took all of the prophecies and they said, well, that couldn't possibly be more than one visit. That's an important thought. Now, the reason I say that is there's part of the Christian church that will say, well, there couldn't possibly be more than one visit for Jesus either in the end times, like a rapture and then him coming back to seek vengeance. But it's the same problem you would have had with the Jewish people back in Jesus' day for that matter. Also, <clears throat> we look at something we call the law of precedent. And we ask, in Scripture, how many times has God poured forth his wrath on a God-rejecting world? We see two very distinct parts for that. We said it with Sodom and Gomorrah and prior in the story of Noah. 
Those are the two times where we see God pouring forth his wrath upon the God-rejecting world. Now, we can see God pouring forth his wrath on his own people when Israel is taken captive, and then Judah is taken captive. But the two times we see that distinctly. Now, in both cases, there is a consistency. And that is that God seals up and removes his own people before he pours forth his wrath. In Noah's case, he'd seal them. The rain would not fall until the ark was closed up and sealed up. They were set apart. In the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels made clear, we can't even allow this place to be destroyed until you are out of it, with the case of Lot. I just find that interesting because God's precedent was that he always tends to remove before he actually pours forth his wrath. Now, I will say, in fairness, there is one situation that's gray, and that's the situation in Egypt, where God, in essence, seems like he's pouring forth his wrath. There are these plagues. God does, in the middle of them, set apart his people, in, but they're in Goshen. They're treated differently. They're not experiencing those, but they were, if you will, to remove God's people out of Egypt. It wasn't simply to punish Egypt. Now, <clears throat> if we're to look at that, now as I look at those events, you know, the church being uh, a witness and then Jesus coming for his people, a time of tribulation, a time where uh, Jesus rules for a thousand years, there's a great battle, and we win. If I took that to the book of Revelation, and I tried to put them in, in whatever order, if I believe the book of Revelation to be linear, in other words, I believe it to be start once, you know, starts in one place and it continues consecutively in time, well, then I couldn't help but put it in that order. And the reason is, because even in the book of Revelation chapter 4, the first verse starts and begins, or starts and ends, with the word metatelita, which means, after these things. In other words, clearly there's a point where there's another, that another okay, now that that happens, now this happens after that. And you'll find after that, you'll continue, you'll, you'll continue to say, well, then after that, this happened, then after that, this happened. I tend to look at it as a linear thing. So if I looked at that, this is what I see. Chapters 1 through 3, there is a focus on the church. Last mentions of the church, by the way, when you see that. The church, Jesus addresses seven specific churches, and they're, they're falling short, if you will, in regards to their mission and their relationship with him. After that, you have this amazing celebration in chapters 4 and 5, a time when people are standing before God, worshiping him. I think it's a really cool point. God takes us to heaven. After that, from chapter 6 through 19, we have a time that's called the tribulation, a time of trouble. Interesting, according to Daniel, comparing it to this, it's a time that is seven years. Now, <coughs> seven years. In the middle of those seven years, something radical happens and everything gets crazy and it really falls to pot that's the time we would call the time of great tribulation not great like gee that's great great like that's huge that you know tribulation just means a really bad deal bad time in other words those seven years were, were a bad time but the last three and a half were the worst of them all that was the way that works in the middle of that according to the book of daniel the antichrist is going to make some form of, some form of uh, agreement 
in the temple and then declare that he's the only thing allowed to be worshipped. Which means a temple has to exist for what it's worth. At which point then he says, then the end will come, Jesus even told us that. When you see the Antichrist standing in there, declaring himself in such a way. The abomination that causes desolation is the way Jesus speaks of it. Now, after that, then Satan is bound for a thousand years. Jesus rules. Then he's released for one last great battle. And then we win and live happily forever after. Now, because of that, the general debate is when the Lord comes back. When is he coming back in regards to that tribulation period? By the way, he calls the time of great tribulation, it's, it's said as three and a half years, a time, times and half a time, and 42 months. Who can do math? How many years is 42 months? Three and a half. Time, if a time was a, was a year, time, times, and half a time, that's three and a half years. Consistently using that point. I might suggest to you, the point is, is that some would say that Jesus comes for his people before the tribulation. Some would say he comes for us during the tribulation. And some would say he'll come for us, if you will, after the tribulation. That becomes, and that, again, fancier terms are pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, trib for tribulation. Now, you can be a Christian and believe any one of those you want. Now, if I look at God's precedent, I tend to think he tends to pull his people out before he pours forth his wrath. The real question is, what is God doing during the tribulation? Is he just punishing people? Because if he's punishing people, then why in the world doesn't he just get it over with? Why take seven years, three and a half even more intensively, to punish people? If he's just going to send them to hell anyways. Now, that doesn't make any sense at all. Unless what he's doing is giving them chance after chance to actually respond and finally say yes to him. So might I just suggest to you, that if I look at it from the book of Revelation, 4 and 5 would be the rapture. In other words, that God, that God comes for his people before he pours forth his wrath. Now, there are some who want to say, and they can be very smart to say this, but that doesn't mean that they're right. That the church did not believe in that kind of theology until 500 years later. Here's the problem. The Thessalonian church thought Jesus had already... Someone had told them Jesus had already come and he didn't get them when he did. And it freaked them out. It sent them into a tizzy. <clears throat> and the reason I say that is it seems clear that the Thessalonian church believed that the Lord could come. Did Jesus leave us believing he could come back at any moment? Apparently... Even to the point where, when Peter asked, when Jesus was reinstating him in John 21, well, what about that guy? Speaking of John, Jesus says, well, what if that guy remains till I come back? What difference does that make to you? And Peter says, Jesus didn't say that was going to happen, but he said, what, do, what does it matter to you? But the way that he said that led people to believe that Jesus could come back before John died. The only reason I say that is it seems pretty clear that Jesus left us with this idea. As a matter of fact, even when he spoke to John at the end, he goes, I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me. Blessed is the one, speaking to those people even then, blessed is the servant to whom was master when he comes, finds so watching. He's like, I want you guys watching. Now imagine if 
We actually waited for a whole bunch of other things. Well, then, we wouldn't be watching for Jesus until those things started showing up. Now, for what it's worth. Now, look it. Again, I want to challenge you because chances are, if this in any way challenges what you already believe, my question is, did you read the Bible to come to your conclusions or was it handed to you by someone else? And I know that's dangerous because I'm handing it to you now in this way. But I challenge you, like I would any, search the scriptures and you come to your conclusion, but make sure you come to it because the Bible says it and not just because somebody kind of pitched it to you and then threw a couple of verses out like I'm doing at the moment. When you read Matthew 24 and 25, when you read the end of Jesus right before he ascends and what he says, when you read what he taught them during that time prior to that, when you realize what Jesus says to John, one thing seems very clear and evident. They really believe that it could be any minute Jesus could show up. That's just important. And what seems important to me about it is that it did something to the church. It got them excited about spending eternity. Eternity wasn't just something so distant and disconnected that we really didn't live in the reality of it. Well, like someday I'm going to die, and maybe if we have one of those really bad days and something happens to us, we're like, maybe I'll die today. Whoa, it's kind of reality again. Well, it's like we lived in the reality that at any given moment, in the blink of an eye, everything could be changed forever, just like that. And it did something to us. I really believe it's one of the things that shuts down the church is that we stop looking for the Lord to come. And it's the same thing that if Daniel found a girl that he loved and she's been waiting for the right man her whole life and Daniel proposes to her and he gives her a ring and she says, and we ask, when's the wedding date? And she says, I don't know. Dan said it'll be sometime. But sooner or later, it seems like he has no intention or at least it's, there's no end in sight of Daniel actually coming. She gets less excited about the wedding. Well, for what it's worth, I just want to challenge you in that. That it tells us the reason the Lord hasn't even come back yet. And Peter has to explain that, by the way, to the people he's writing to, the people of the diaspora throughout Turkey and the Middle East, and through the eastern side of that, the Middle East. He says, the Lord is not slack, is some kind of slackness. But he's patient. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now, the reason Peter is saying that is because people are looking and they're saying, where is this return? That t- tells me that someone is saying he's returning and others are going, well, then where is he? And he's like, well, the reason he hasn't come back isn't because he's lazy or because he's slacking, because he wants to wait until the last possible person could say yes. So let me suggest this as a thought. What if the whole point of the tribulation is to force you to finally make your choice about saying yes to Jesus. To disqualify every other thing you could worship. So what if he took the church at the beginning because there would be no need? We've already made our choice. But there's an awful lot of other people living in Egypt. And the time of the tribulation will be a time much like the time in Egypt. Where there are those who will say yes. But they won't say yes without something as dramatic as a disqualification of every god they worship right now. And by the time they're done, they will want out. What if that be the case? That he would have lived completely up to his precedence of preparing his people and removing them beforehand. And yet those that were yet to be his 
the nation he was still yet to build would still happen much like that of Egypt. Well, it's to consider. Now look, in the end of it all, my biggest concern for what it's worth of mid-trib, where you actually know, boom, right in the middle of that time, right when that last three and a half years is going to happen, that's when Jesus comes, is that you actually will know the day. And we know that we can. If it's at the end of that time, as long as you know when it began, you'd know when, or at least you'd know when the first or the last three and a half years are. You make it through that, you still know when he's showing up. But he says, I come like a thief in the night. And I love the idea that he could show up at any given moment. What if it was tonight? So last thought on this. And again, this is all just food for thought, but at least I want you to get the idea that what if it would be the Lord comes back, then all hell breaks loose, if you will. <clears throat> then the Lord comes back, but with us to rule and reign for a thousand years. Then there's one last battle, and then the whole thing's done. That's a fairly simple rundown. But what if what the Lord is waiting for is for the last person who would say yes without something as dramatic as a rapture or a tribulation for them to say yes? And what if that last person is someone you know? What if we're at that point? Because let's face it, we don't know. There's a lot of people that we think, well, they might say yes, but it may take something that dramatic. But what if there's one person left right now, today, one person left, that when they say yes to Jesus, the Lord's like, let's go. And all that's waiting is for that last person that would have to say yes without the twisting of their arm of a tribulation. And what if that last person is someone you know? And what if you're the person who gets to pray with them tonight? Look for me in the sky and go, it was him! It was him! Because I want to be able to go, yeah! I think that would be pretty cool. Well, I want to pray. But I want us to start with this idea that what if tonight God started stirring our hearts? about the excitement of his return? And there are those who go, well, I believe that we're in the tribulation now. Not, in, not if you take anything literally. You can't take anything literally and assume this is the tribulation. Just the same way that you assume that when you get, the cold, you get a cold that you're Job. Read the book of Job. Clearly you ain't Job by a cold. You're not sitting in a cave while people tell you that you did something wrong, scraping your open running swords with a, sores with a piece of broken pottery. Yeah, that's pretty rotten. And while your wife is saying, just curse God and die. If we read the Bible for what it says, and we got excited about the Lord's return, how would that change things? If we knew tonight could be it. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that there is a day that you are going to get vengeance. It's clear. But there is also a day where you are going coming for your people. And Lord, that can be the same day or different days. But I am real excited about your return. And I know, Lord, every time I read through this, it gets me excited about the fact that I, that I tread lighter on this earth because I recognize it's temporary. And I want to view it that way. So Lord, please tonight, for all the truth be, that be spoken, if there are things amiss, Lord, wipe it from our memory, but the truth that be spoken, burn it into our hearts. Burn it. And may it change the way we do everything. That when we pray, Maranatha, 
Lord, come quickly. We, are, we mean it. And that we are watching and waiting and excited about your return. So Lord, motivate us with that, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Thessalonica. To this day, called Thessaloniki. Now, <coughs> It is the, It was, in its day, the capital of Macedonia when Paul visited it. It was the um, political capital. It was the second largest city in all of the Grecian Empire, as far as Greece was concerned. So it was actually considered its co-capital to some. I mean, I don't know if you ever thought about that, about Thessalonica. Because of that, people were very strong uh, in regards to their patriotism. Anything that could seem against it, uh, would definitely cause quite a stir. Now, there was one place also in Macedonia that actually had a greater patriotic, uh, patriotic mindset, and that was Philippi, because that's where all of the retired soldiers went. And boy, you really want to get patriotism? Find it with your old soldiers. So that's where they went. But this was still quite active for that. And one of the reasons it was so populous was because the two most major trade routes in the area basically intersected right at Thessalonica. The one that went north to south, and the one that went east to west. Uh, by the way, to, even to this day, Thessaloniki has over a million people living there. That kind of gives you an idea what the place is like. Alexander the Great had died in 323 uh, BC, and then he pushed. Uh, there was a big push after that, sort of the, that deficit, because he was such a strong character. Uh, his absence really kind of caused a warlord mindset. And that happens often when you have somebody that's, in essence, kind of the figurehead, is that people fight underneath it once in his absence. We've seen that even in our own uh, situations uh, in regards to uh, some of the things we've seen in Calvary, which has been really sad. But it's like you see that in places like Iraq when Saddam Hussein left. You saw, you saw that, by the way, when the emperors left China. And there was this warlord, warlord mindset where people kind of fought. And there were definitely people that kind of fought. And there was a whole idea of trying to move the centricity of the Grecian Empire farther east from Greece. And so this was actually a candidate in some ways. Now, for what it's worth, uh, it wasn't only but eight years later that Cassander of Macedon actually founds this particular city. Names it after his wife. <coughs> by the way, whose name is Thessaloniki. There's the idea. Niki, by the way, like Nike, it means victory. And basically, the reason was that the girl was born on the day of a great victory of the Grecian battle. And so they named her that as a result of it. The victory in the area of Thessalonica would be the idea. So the Battle of the Crocus Field uh, on her birthday. Now, in 40, 41 BC, Mark Anthony conquers it for Rome and makes tremendous promises about him coming and making this place again, thus the place, thus centralized area, in essence, another second capital, if you will, for Rome. But he never comes back. And in his place, other people actually come and kind of claim, well, we've kind of taken a vote and it hasn't happened here. And hasn't happened. So what the, sort of the history in Thessaloniki, or Thessalonica, as we would say, would be that it was a place where there were a lot of broken promises about it becoming the really important hub that it was promised to be. You know, and it was often with this idea that someone would return back to do so, like Mark Antony, by the way. Now, 
the Rome builds the Ignatius Highway that goes all the way from Istanbul in the east, from where they are, all the way to Albania, by the way, in the, in the, in the uh, west, uh, as well, by the way, the route that goes and, co and connects Greece to the Black Sea. So this is, that, those are our crosshairs, you know, like kind of like that. And right there then becomes this hub where everybody sort of stops to do so. Uh, <clears throat> what we have in uh, the Bible, which is, of course, the place where we get irrefutable truth, uh, is that Paul on his second missionary, I'm sorry, his third missionary journey, uh, actually goes there because he had a vision of a Macedonian man. Sorry, second, second missionary journey. Uh, he had just picked up Timothy, uh, and he, in the central area of Turkey, and then gets a vision of a Macedonian man and winds up in uh, sending him into Europe, which we could be thankful. That's how the gospel got to us. Uh, he immediately heads over, and the first area in Europe that he hits is Macedonia. He hits the area of Philippi. You're probably aware of the fact that he was treated pretty roughly there. He was beat. He was accused because he cast a demon out of a girl, that she was uh, a slave girl. So she was property, was like damaging property to deliver her from possession. They arrested him. God rocks the jail. And then ultimately they're released and sent out. But the next place they head to is Thessalonica. When they had to Thessalonica, Paul spends three weeks there in the synagogue. That means that there is at least a semi-predominant Jewish populace in Thessalonica. And they are actually very strong in their beliefs. They're very patriotic in their own way. So when Paul gets there, ultimately what happens is his, po his popularity really stirs anger up with the Thessalonian uh, synagogue. And they want him dead. And they chase him out of there and Paul flees there with his crew. Uh, he flees from there. He doesn't spend but the three weeks there, and he flees and heads to Berea. And once he gets to Berea, ten miles west of Thessaloniki, they hate him so bad, the people in Thessalonica, the Jews there, that they actually head all the way those ten miles, not in a car or a train, on best on an animal, to go and chase him out of their entire... They want him out of Macedonia. They don't just want him out of Thessaloniki. They want him out of Macedonia as a whole. And that's where Paul winds up ultimately in Athens. Now, several times after that, Paul will actually travel through Macedonia. So from that point on, when you read about Macedonia, consider that the two main places Paul might visit, third might be that of Breb, the two places would be Thessaloniki and, and Philippi. So when he travels through Macedonia, and if you look at your map there, it's, again, it's the upper lip of the Aegean Bay. When he has to travel through there, more than likely, that's where he's going to visit. Now, we do know that they were, um, they were contributors to Paul's ministry. Paul tells even the Philippians in Philippians 4.16 that even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. There, by the way, it was actually that the Philippians were sponsoring Paul when Paul was in Thessalonica. What we're going to see, though, is that Paul had been very concerned because of the way that he was persecuted in Thessalonica. We'll see that Paul recognizes that that persecution now is turning on the church that he started to try to plant. I mean, imagine going to London for three weeks and trying to plant a church. Preaching the gospel, getting chased out for your life. Not just deported, but guys with cleavers chasing after you. And then wondering whether or not there was a decent church from that. Could you imagine? Three weeks. That's what you get. Well, that's basically what Paul's looking at, by the way. So when we look at the, the letter, 
of First Thessalonians, Paul is actually, if you look at it, he is really trying to check up on the church and tell them what he saw as a result of it. So, <clears throat> take a look at what the problems are in this church. And I'd like to suggest to you, now you have a sheet of paper that I gave you, right, that kind of has the overview of the, uh, of the five chapters. Okay, I wanted to make sure that you had that. Because what you'll see is each one kind of has a simple theme. And I think that that's part of the fun of it. Uh, I want to make sure that I have it here so I can see what you guys have. I have to remember what it was that I gave to you guys. Okay. <clears throat> now, normally we'll read in the round, but for the sake of clarity, for those who might be listening or watching, I'll try to read it out and just try to read along with me if you would, please. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. Sylvanus, by the way, more than likely is sightless. The same person, by the way, Paul was traveling with in his second missionary journey with Timothy. Remember, Paul had an apprentice and an assistant. His assistant was Silas, by the way, means Woody. And Timothy was his apprentice, who his name means Precious. To the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you all in our prayers, or making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all Macedonia and Achaia, who believed Achaia, by the way, would be Greece as we know it today. For from you the word of the Lord is sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true, I'm sorry, the living and true God, <coughs> and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, in our first chapter, what we have in a simple sense was a focus on the church, them, and how they were a true church. Notice what he looked for, and I'm only going to point out a couple of things, because really the whole point is I want to make sure that we get the rhyme and reason, the rhythm of the, of the book. But in it, in the simplest sense, is that he, I can't stop praising God because I notice the things that I'm looking for in a church. I'm seeing what I'm there. So imagine, Paul's there for a few weeks, he Plant, you know, he preaches the gospel, people respond, he wants to see something organized and happen. What does he see? He sees their work of faith. In other words, work, by the way, a Fordsworth ergas just means actions. In other words, your faith is more than a philosophy. Your faith is bringing about action. And your labor of love. And your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus. He says, the three things I, were looking for, I was looking for, I saw. I wanted to see that your faith did something. I wanted to see that you, when you did it, you did it in love. And I wanted to see how you saw Jesus. And that was that you lived in a hope of him. You were excited about him. 
Hope, by the way, elpis, literally means to anticipate with pleasure. What a great word that is. And he goes, you guys know how we came to you, and I just want you to know, I remember what it was like for you guys. You turned, you were already religious people. You were spiritual people before we got there. You worshipped idols. But you turned from every one of those dumb, dead things to serve the living and true God. He goes, but I want you to know this. When we were there, clearly we were persecuted. There's no doubt. And when we left, you guys were persecuted. And because of that, you became a model church to everyone. Understand this. Would it be true today? If you were to draw comfort and encouragement and an inspiration <clears throat> from a believer, who would be the easiest for you to do that from? For me, it would be somebody really persecuted for their faith. There is something inspiring about knowing somebody that stands in the face of opposition and doesn't bend on their walk with Christ. For us, to be honest, I think the biggest challenge we have is that we're so comfortable. Temptation has this tendency to want to creep in. That's our biggest challenge, is to say no to temptation. But might I say, the two biggest proofs of a real commitment is when it is challenged and when it is tempted. <coughs> but notice how this chapter ends. It ends with this. Not only did you turn from those idols to serve the true and living God, but you also are waiting for his son. Notice, by the way, they were waiting. They lived in a, in a state of excitement, looking to the skies and waiting for him. Who, by the way, he says, delivers us from the wrath to come. Chapter 2. We move now from the focus of the church to Paul's care. From the true church that we saw in chapter 1 to the true ministry in chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had been, after we had suffered before and been spitefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much affliction. For our exhortation did not come to you in error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is our witness, nor did we seek the glory of men, either from you or from others, but we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, when we might have, but we were gentle among you. And just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you would become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and, labor and toil, laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. And as you, as you, sorry, and as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into the kingdom of his glory. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of truth, as you heard it, you welcomed it as not the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea and Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did. 
from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles so that they may be saved and so also fill up this measure, the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But believe, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire, and therefore I wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. In the second chapter, Paul makes, in the simplest sense, a clear case for how much he really cared about them and the way that he treated them when he was there. And he uses the example of two other people, two, if you will, two relationships. What two relationships does Paul say he treated them like this kind of relationship or that kind of relationship? What two does he use in chapter 2? What's a nursing mother? And what do we learn about a nursing mother according to this? It's very good, by the way. Yes. Holds that thing like it's the most important thing in the universe. And that she was gentle. Imagine, do, I mean, do we get that image of Paul? This is a brand new church. He's preaching Jesus to them. And he cherishes them like they're the most important thing in the world. And he's gentle among them. That was a nursing mother. What was the other one? What was the other relationship other than that of a nursing mother? Excellent. Like a father with his children. And how did a father treat his children? At least he would say, how would a decent father treat his children? He did three basic things. What are they? Exhorted. Exhorted. Exhorted, comforted, and charged. It's verse 11, if you can find that. Every one of them. And what did he exhort, comfort, and charge them to do? To walk worthy of God. Beautiful. To walk worthy of the God who calls him to the kingdom of his glory. Do you know how important that verse is? That was the verse that changed, and Suzanne already knows this. That was the verse that changed everything for me. When Suzanne told me that she was pregnant, it was... Yeah, with you. Uh, it was it was the day after Christmas. I was a day before leaving for my first trip to Israel. And my whole mind was there. I of course I didn't see it coming. We had we had our Christmas Eve, we had our Christmas. And then the day afterwards she goes, "Oh, there's one more present." And she gives me this box. And I open up the box, and there's this strip of the plus in it. And I look up, and I and I can see her. Like whatever my response is at this moment is going to be permanently. It's going to be permanently framed in her mind, as a memory for the rest of her life. And I was more concerned about my response, than the reality of what this whole thing was, because I knew that I didn't want to blow that moment. And I, because I knew that you know. 
guys, we handle the moment, and then we go later on, and we figure out what in the world we're really supposed to do. So, you know, so uh, I was like, wow, praise the Lord, and we, we held each other, and Suzanne cried, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. And then I left for Israel. And on that trip to Israel, I went and got to go to the Wailing Wall, of course, which is expected. And while I'm at the Wailing Wall, I dropped my head and fell against the wall. And I said, God, I'm going to be a dad. How am I a dad? How can I be a dad? I mean, I knew, and I used to tell her, when you get pregnant is when God knows we're ready. Which is humorous, I mean, or at least less unready than we were before. And I'm going, God, I I want to be the best dad ever. I just really, I want to be a dad that when, when whoever my children are, look and say, I hope that my, if it's a girl, because at that point you didn't know, that they would marry someone and say, I hope that you become the dad that my dad was. Like, I don't even really know what that's supposed to mean. I don't... I don't know what... Like, if I'm going to pass your test, God, for a dad, what does that mean? I don't want to just write my own rules on what a good dad would be. And the Lord took me to this text. And he goes, Now, let's take a look at this text. This is what you do. Or this is what you're going to do. A really good dad exhorts... Challenges, comforts, and then charges. He warns, he comforts, and he charges. Challenges him. And I go, God, that sounds a lot like a coach. And I goes, yeah. I says, I think I could be that. God says, oh, you're going to be the best one. If that's what you want to be, then be the best one. And I've sought to be my kid's coach from that point on. Now, truth be told, I think there's a little bit of mom in me because I cherish my children. I cherish them and I seek to be gentle. Sometimes maybe I've been too gentle, but I can say that I remember how that verse changed everything for me. And I'm like, okay, if this is what a good dad is, then I want to be bad. Anyways, for that matter, Paul, back to our point here, forgive me for the sort of personal walk down that trip. Paul looks at me and goes, you know how we treated you. We treated you like a baby. And by the way, you're aware of the fact that in that culture, basically every child belongs to mom until basically about 12 years old. During those first 12 years, mom hands you a box of absolutes. She's kind of like, this is what it looks like. There's a real God, and this is what it is. This is his word, and this is how you fit in. Now, find who you are in that box. In that sense. And she tells, and she's the one who's supposed to fill the children with wonder. She tells the stories in Scripture. Kind of like what we do in children's ministry office. We tell the stories about how amazing God is and how big and how provisional and how powerful and how glorious and how much He cares. You kind of get that wonder in those first 12 years. Then you can hand it over to Dad, and then Dad kind of goes, wants to take you and shape you into how to send you into the world and change it. And I love the fact that what Paul says is, I, I basically did both. I did those nurturing wonder years, if you will, and then I went and did the formative years of challenging anyone to the practical. 
Because I was both with you. You know that. And by the way, notice it says, and in all of that, because of this, and I know you guys are getting hammered, I wanted to go visit you again, but I couldn't yet. I was hindered. <coughs> now, we don't know how Satan was hindering them. What we do know from the book of Romans is that the only reason Satan can even hinder anyone is because God has a better time of fruitfulness. It's never like Satan never can do anything or stop you or hinder you. And by the way, hindering isn't stopping. Hindering means he's interfering. He can't do any of that unless God allows him. Let's just be honest. So we've got to stop blaming Satan for things and actually thinking, if God's going to allow this, he's got a greater purpose. And he knows how to frustrate our plans because at the moment we want to get something accomplished. But God says, you're going to need to wait. And you're like, but these are great plans. And God goes, but I have a better plan. I think David thought he had a great plan when he wanted to build the temple. And God's like, yeah, but I've got a better plan. Now, in our first chapter, remember there was the fact that they waited for the Lord. In the second chapter, it says that Paul is excited about seeing them and being able to stand with them when the Lord comes at his coming. Chapter 3. Therefore, and remember, he's concerned because they're being hammered for their faith. When we can no longer endure it, we thought it'd be good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. He's concerned because he knows that they're getting hammered and he's like, it sounds like they could use some backup. Tim, why don't you go and take care of it? Now, how would you like to be Timothy? Remember, the last time you were there, and Timothy was there with Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Paul. <clears throat> when they got chased out, Paul was the figurehead, and so they tried to hit I mean, Timothy was kind of a kid, so maybe, I mean, we don't read that they kind of made Timothy's life miserable. But he was, you know, he was hanging out with people that had a target on their back. And now Paul says, imagine me turning to Hugo and going, Hugo, now I need you to go back to London. Remember when we were there last time and they tried to kill us, or at least me? Well, they maybe didn't try to kill you, but they tried to kill me. Well, I'm sending you. And I can see Hugo going, yeah, I can see why you don't want to go. You know? <clears throat> and it's like, you know, I, I think they're really struggling, and I would really, and I wanted, want to make sure they're still walking with the Lord. Chapter 2, by the way, was about Paul's care, but in chapter 3 was about the checkup. Now, in other words, a true follow-up. And by the way, a true follow-up doesn't have to just be with you. You can send somebody that they also have a relationship with, and that's what he's doing. He says, I sent Timothy, because I wanted to establish him, and I wanted to establish you and encourage you. Verse 3. That none of you, and not one of you, I love that, should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. I didn't want a single one of you to fall through the cracks and think, well, now that I believe in Jesus, why are people hating me? For in fact, we told you, before when we were with you, that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love. Notice the two things he's looking for again. He's like, I want to make sure, I want to make sure these guys are actually still walking with the Lord. Hugo, go check on them. And what, I, what seems clear is, is that Timothy knew what to look for. Imagine somebody shows up at our church on a Sunday morning, or even in a situation like this tonight. 
Would they see our faith? And would they, would they see a selflessness? That's what real love is. It's not just a warm, huggy thing. Would they see a selflessness? Because when Paul sends Timothy, he checks and he goes, Timothy returns and he's like, Paul, you would be so pleased. They are trusting in Jesus and they're loving one another. And that you all have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our afflictions and distress, we are comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. <coughs> Paul does a checkup. He sends Timothy. Timothy comes back and he goes, that's what it is. Now imagine that that's what we pray for our church. That what would be clear is that our trust in Jesus would be evident and that our love for one another would be prominent. So that if Paul were to come and look, he'd go, this is a church that's right on. But face it, the church is only made up of its members, so to speak. If your body has cancer in every part of it, you put them all together, you're not going to get a cancer-free body. And for a church to be that, we need to be that. Chapter 4, finally. Even though he's got this in chapter 5 to say. Brethren, we exhort you in the Lord. And by the way, oh, I should say, look at the end of chapter 3. Notice how at the end of chapter 3. Hold on, where does that end? I want to make sure. Oh, yeah, there we go. It says, Now may our Lord, I'm sorry, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and to all, just as we do to you. That he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. Notice again the focus on his return at the end of the chapter. So he's like, hey, you guys are an amazing church because you're standing up under persecution. Everyone knows it. The Lord's coming. By the way, you know how we behaved? Like a mother would and like a father would because we love you guys. Oh, and the Lord's coming. Well, and then we were really concerned because of your persecutions and we checked to make sure that you guys were okay. You guys seem to be doing great. Good, because the Lord's coming. He's constantly bringing that back up, which is really important because, again, you will see here in chapter 4, that was the problem. Up to this point, by the way, has he had any correction to this church? He hasn't found any fault in him, has he? Has there been any point where he's like, you guys are wonky on this doctrine, or the way that you're treating each other? We don't find that he's, I mean, think about the churches where he's like, I have, I have doubts about you, he says to the, or to the Galatians, to the Corinthians, he's like, you guys are still carnal. But these guys? He's like, I love you guys, and you are a crown in our joy. And I mean, think of how great it is. Even the Philippian church that he's so tender to, he still says, tell those girls to get along. <laughs> so finally, brothers, chapter 4. We urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive for us how do you ought to walk and please God. For you know the commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality and that each one should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we have forewarned you and testified 
For God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. <coughs> Excuse me. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God <coughs> was also given us his Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. Notice, by the way, there's no correction here, but instruction. Do you see the difference? He goes, I want to remind you of this. He's not going, hey, you guys, you should know better. He's going, you need to know God's will is that you shouldn't look like the world. And one of the areas that you should definitely not look like the world is in the area of the sexual life. <clears throat> so when we say, well, the world allows that, <coughs> Jesus says, when was that ever a standard for my people? And he says, this is my will for you to be set apart and be different than the world. But in all of that, did you notice that Jesus called himself an avenger? He says that the Lord is the avenger of such. In other words, you really want to pity somebody when it comes to Jesus avenging? That's the person who trips up another, and more specifically, a brother or sister who trips up another brother or sister in the area of sexual purity. He says the Lord is the avenger of that. In other words, God will deal with them harshly. That's a heavy statement. Do you realize that in, our, in the church in general, there's such a very cavalier attitude about, this, about sexual purity? And I think a lot of the reason is, is that people are afraid that if they start holding a standard, that it'll be held against them. But what if we all just held the standard because we know it's right, and then we sought to uphold it ourselves in our lives? Isn't that what should happen? So when you actually, I mean, when people go, do you actually believe that people should be virgins until they get married? Yeah, yeah, I actually do believe that. And guess what? I believe that outside of the marriage, you should remain a virgin other than the person you're married to, if that makes sense. You know, because that's what God intended so that when we can talk about the sanctity of a marriage or the sanctity of what it really means to be a father or a mother or a husband or a wife, and we do it the way God calls, then he uses the example. We get it. But it's hard to use those examples today because when you use the term father, a lot of people already have a very bad idea of the word or a mother and they get a weird idea of the word or the word love and they get a weird idea of the word because we've allowed other things to define it instead of scripture. And we don't even see those examples much. And he goes, I want to warn you. God's very serious about sexual purity. Now, with that in mind, he says, comparing that, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. You guys know how to love each other in regards to selflessness and care for each other. But I do want to make sure that you guys are clear on the fact that that doesn't mean that you should be allowing sexual impurity in your in your household, so to speak. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, which is nice, which means that they actually are cool to the people in Berea and Philippi. <clears throat> but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, and that you inspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. And to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Now, fun for what it's worth, I've often used First Thessalonians 4.11 when people keep poking into you, and I want you to know that God actually tells you to mind your own business. It says it right there in First Thessalonians 4.11. But he says, don't just do that. Get busy with something with your own. Now, are the crux of the matter here. 
the remainder of chapter 4. I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For we believe that if Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Now, before I get into verses 16 through 18, you realize what the point was here, right? Somebody was trying to make it up as they went along. It happens a lot. Because we all feel like we have to have an answer when someone asks us a question. Do you realize how important it is to be able to say you don't know when you don't know? Do you realize how freeing that is? Some people are afraid to answer a question because they're afraid that they'll get to that point like they lost. But what's more dangerous is when a person just makes up an answer. So if I were to ask you, well, if you believe the Lord could come back at any given moment, what about people who die before that point? What happens to them? Well, that's the point here. Someone apparently seemed to have been asked that question with the mindset that the Lord was coming back at any given moment. And you're like, oh. And imagine you're like, Dad, you can't die. Or Mom, you can't die. Or, you know, friend, you can't die. Don't die, Mickey, don't die. Because if you do, you're going to miss the rapture. And then what's going to happen? And Paul goes, stop freaking out about that. The Lord knows what he's going to do with those people. So, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, won't that be a cool moment? Ever wonder what that's going to look like? We lived in a town called Willows for a while, and if I didn't have my doctrine straight, I could have told you that the, the wages of sin was Willows. But... Uh, we lived near a graveyard, and I was saying that we'd be the first to know the rapture, because even if we didn't see the Lord at first, we'd see those dead bodies coming out of the ground. <clears throat> and I wonder what that would be like. The dead in Christ are going to rise out of the ground to meet the Lord in the air first. And we've talked about it before, about the wedding metaphor, about how the elders come first at the wedding to light the way for the groom to get to his bride. But it says the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. Notice the term in verse 17, caught up. And there is our term, harpazo. The term, rapturas in the Latin. Caught up, snatched up, together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. The idea of the Lord coming and snatching us up, should it comfort us. Now, if the Lord was just going to come and settle on earth, why would he snatch us up into heaven? Well, for what it's worth. Last chapter. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. When the day of the Lord comes, they're not going to see that coming either the way, at least the majority. But notice it's not when we say it, but when they say peace and safety. The theme during the time of the destruction of the world will be a time where the world feels like they've actually conquered everything. We are peace, we're, we're in peace, and we are safe. But you, on the other hand, you know, it's not going to come upon you like that. You're not in the darkness. 
so that the day should overtake you as a thief? You're sons of the light and sons of the day. We're not of the night or of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, well, they sleep at night. Well, most of them, unless you have a teen. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let those who are of the day be sober. That's what God wants us to do. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. God did not point us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other, and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And I urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. By the way, hi, do you recognize me? Just kidding. Anyways, um, it, it, it says, well, it's inscription, now it's awkward. And to esteem them very highly in love for, for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. And now we exhort you, brethren. And then we get these, and then we get these one-liners for almost the rest of the chapter. It says, Warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Might I say, when I first started counseling, I started counseling like most of us because someone came and said, can I talk to you? And that normally it isn't like you hang a shingle or it isn't like you, you, know, you wear a shirt that says counselor. Now maybe if you're like in a camp or something, you have to. But chances are most of the counseling you started with came because someone looked at you and thought you had a good answer for them. And I went, Lord, you know, it was, matter of fact, it was even before I had met Suzanne at that point. I was like, Lord, if I'm going to counsel people, I want to know what I'm supposed to be doing. And I remember how the Lord, ultimately, after meeting Suzanne, would lead me to these verses. It's amazing how beautiful it is. Might I challenge you that this is the crux of all counseling and discipleship. Let me go through this quickly, and we're almost done. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We exhort you, brethren, first of all, the first thing is to warn. Nuthetecho. Those who are ataktos. Do you see that, by the way, here? I want to make sure you guys are you guys are seeing this, right? I want to make sure we're all on the same page with this. Hold on. I want to make sure it's okay. Are you okay, honey? Okay. Cool. All right. Here's where it starts. One of the things I'm going to need to do is to warn. Literally, by the way, what the word means is to put to mind. In other words. Let me inform you to those who are autoctos. By the way, like the word tact, it literally means disorganized. But it applies in a lot of different ways. It applies in a, the case of a person who isn't like adhering to what God has set in order. But primarily, most of the time what it is, is somebody that in essence is making things up as they go along instead of sitting under the confines that God has sent them in. So there are those that are going to be unruly. And my response to them, God says, if they are unruly, in other words, they are unwilling to be, in essence, harnessed in by the things of the Lord, you should warn them. Put it to their mind. Let them know. Often, by the way, it's, in, it's done in ignorance. And so when I'm informing them or I'm putting to their mind, what I'm doing is I'm going, maybe you're unaware of the fact that this is the standard God has and you're kind of living outside of that standard. 
The second is to comfort. The, by the way, the word there is parathemai. And parathemai, by the way, again, in our chapter here, the word for comfort here <coughs> means literally to relate near. In other words, to come alongside and to associate with. And who do I do that with? The faint-hearted. And by the way, the word there, alegopsukis, like sukas, like psyche, the word literally means little-spirited. In other words, a person who is depleted. We might say someone who has the mick out of them. He goes, you know what you do with such a person? Come alongside them and relate with them. They could really use that. Because at a moment when you really feel like you're depleted, like you just feel like, dude, I suck, is kind of the idea. It's nice to have someone else around you that isn't just trying to hover over the, over you and just give you advice to kind of go, well, let me just shower you with my brilliance, but rather, well, like, I, I know how you feel. Third, are you with me so far? So, we're going to warn, we're going to comfort, and again, remember, the comfort is to come alongside and associate, if you will. Third word is to uphold. Antechamai. Antechamai, by the way, is the idea of literally propping yourself up on, against someone. Not against them, like, in competition, but if someone's falling over, you kind of put your, you, you, in other words, you're, you're pushing someone up. You're holding them up. You're being the crutch for the moment. And who do I do that with? Someone who's weak. Astenas. Somebody who, by the way, who lacks strength or vigor. And be patient. One of my favorite words, macrothemia. Macro is the opposite of micro. What does micro mean? Yeah, tiny. So what do you think macro means? Big or long. Thumia means fury. We might say it this way. Have a really long wick. You know how you say that guy's short-wicked? You know, at any moment he could just snap. Be the opposite. For who? According to this, who should you be macrothemia with? Everyone. Have a long wick to everyone. Don't let anyone get your goat. So, and I remember, what if this was... So here are the people I'm dealing with. The unruly the faint-hearted, in other words, the depleted, we might say the defeated often, the weak, someone who's really just feeling they just don't have it. But with everyone, we want to make sure we have a long way. And what do I do with them? I put it in their mind. I come alongside and relate to them. I prop them up. But in the end of it, I'll see that no one pays, repays evil for evil. And by the way, if you're going to counsel in the name of the Lord, Probably a third of the cases will be this. Someone will say, I know I'm not supposed to get him back, Anna. But let me tell you what they did to me. And from this point on, Anna's going to have to go. Dang it, remember what he said? See that no one repays evil for evil. I go, yeah, I'll agree with you. That was evil to you. But you're not allowed to repay evil with evil. But rather instead, always pursue what is good. Beneficial. Carlos. Both for yourself and for all. I love that as a counseling text. But in the simplest sense, as we're kind of looking at this, remember, the idea was is that Paul showed the church in chapter 1. He showed his own calling, if you will, in chapter 2. He showed how he checked up on him in chapter 3. In chapter 4, by the way, we saw Jesus' coming in more sort of profound detail. And in chapter 5, we see the call on their life and the true behavior they're supposed to exert as they're Christians. So this is how, the, this is how it ends. With our cool little one-liners. Rejoice always. Okay. Verse 16. Rejoice always. You say it. 
What does First Thessalonians five sixteen say? You guys just memorized the verse. Ready for the next one? Pray without ceasing. Your turn. Pray without ceasing. Okay, what does First Thessalonians five seventeen say? You've just memorized two verses. You guys are good. Or you have a great teacher. Or both. Now, how do you pray without ceasing? Obviously, prayer is not a ritual. If it were, how do you do a ritual always? Do you know, actually, there are people in Scripture God said prayed always? I challenge you to look at Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And that guy was a centurion of all people. And it's not like, oh, it's that second hour of prayer. I need to go and do my hour of prayer. If prayer in its simplest sense, by the way, prosukamai literally means to cast yourself before God's good will. I think that's something that needs to happen all the time. All right, Lord, in the simplest sense, I am yours. Do with me as you wish. You must live that way in communication with him. And everything, give thanks, because this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. For, or the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test all things and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Every form. Man, it doesn't matter. Don't go near it. If it's a form of evil, don't hug it. Don't, don't <coughs> sniff it. Don't rub against it. Don't stand near it and bask in it. Abstain. Get away from it. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify, set apart you completely, that your whole soul or spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless <coughs> at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who will also do it. Oh, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss, and I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. We've gone through the entire book in an hour. Actually, we did in an hour. My challenge. Do you think that this church believed that the Lord was coming back at any moment? Yeah. It seemed pretty obvious in every chapter he's bringing that up. And he goes, and when he does come, you're my joy. Don't worry about those that have died before. He'll get them first. You're going to be okay there. And then he's going to get you. And that should... And now, let me, let me say, if I were to say that the Lord is coming and he's going to pull you up to, into the clouds to be with him forever, does that... It, I mean, honestly... Not ideologically, does that really encourage you? Because according to Paul, he thinks that should really set you going. If we realize, you know what that does? Is it reminds me that everything around me is temporary. And I tread lighter on it. And I think about the one thing that I could possibly take with me. And that's you. I mean, in the end of it all, all of the beauty of our area stays here. But the one thing I really want to come with me is not my guitar that I've waited over a year and a half for. It's you guys. I am so thankful that I get that. And he goes, that was my crown and joy. The crown and joy was not a church planted for Paul to say, the Thessalonian church, that's a model church. Paul could have said, oh, that's a really killer thing. He was like, it's you guys. You guys are the thing. And the Lord's going to come and when he does, man, let that encourage you. And may everything about you be set apart and blameless when he shows up. Because man, when he comes, he's coming and he's not turning around. He's not going to go, oh, no, I'll come back later. 
Oh, never mind. Well, I want to pray for us that our hearts be stirred by that. Because according to the Thessalonian church, they were freaked out because someone had said Jesus had already come and raptured his people and they missed it. He's like, I don't want you guys to live that way. The Lord's, going, the Lord's already coming. And by the second one, we're going to see that Paul will focus a little bit more on the day of the Lord, the end of the world, if you will. But first, I want you to realize he's coming. And don't worry about those who've died before. You'll get to see them too. He goes, but when it happens, let it encourage you that it's happening. And until then, how are we to live? What's your call? It's pretty simple and practical in chapter 5. But in a simple sense, I want you set apart and pure. And loving one another. Keep growing in that. You'll never outgrow that. All right. Any questions before we pray? No? Done it in time so that we've even gotten done before the sun set. How crazy is that? Okay. Well, let's pray, friends. Lord, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful book. I want to thank you, Lord, for how you've walked us quickly, but again, in a very overviewing type of manner. I want to thank you, Lord, for the way that you've again reminded us that you are coming back. And Lord, if that has slipped our mind or we've pushed it aside because we wanted to focus more on the things of the temporary, Lord, I pray that you would reset us so that our mind and priorities are where they belong. And I want to thank you for the beauty of being able to worship you here knowing that all of that's rehearsal for, for eternity. I want to thank you, Lord, that the one thing I really want to spend eternity with is the one thing, Lord, that I get to. <clears throat> I thank you, Lord, for even the things that we could enjoy here on earth. We would, we would not enjoy them for eternity. But each other, on the other hand, we could. So, Lord, I just pray that you would inspire us and get us ready for that. May our hearts and minds and souls be set apart, pure and holy, sanctified and used, to live lives that don't grieve your spirit, that don't squelch or quench your spirit, but ones that celebrate you. And make us this people that you've ordained, I pray. Jesus, in your name, come quickly, we pray. Amen.